You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I ask you if you are a fan of the Miami Heat, would you say yes or would you say no? If you would say yes, could you list the name of the players for me? Would you know the name Butler or Robinson? Would you know stats about them, be it their points or their salary? Do you even have a heat jersey that you wear at game time or throughout the daytime? Uh, Perhaps I ask some of you if you're a Dolphins fan. Would you say yes or no to that? Do the names Tua and Hill or Ramsey ring a bell? Do you know that they were at nine and eight this last season? They, They made it to the playoffs and the wild card round losing to the Buffalo Bills, only just by three points. Do you know that? If you were to say that you're a fan, could you actually give the information to support this? You see, people often identify themselves as fans, but only at key times, at clutch moments. One says he is a fan, And you can tell by the sticker on his car, by the shirt on his back, by the schedule for his weekend. But another says he is a fan, and you you would not know it. He does not know the players by name. He does not know the record for the season. He does not know what day or time the game is at. He claims to be something that's curious, if not confusing, to many of us. He talks about the sport and maybe the team, but only in the glory years, like the Dolphins. Remember the Marino years? But today, couldn't tell you the quarterback. Now, true confession, I had to look up all that information. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. If I go to a Miami Heat game or a Miami Dolphins game, I will lose my mind cheering, partly because I just love the experience. I love my city, but am I tracking it? No. I'm super happy for others of you to track it, but for me to identify as a fan, well, that would be mm, maybe inaccurate versus others of you, very accurate. Well, this is what it's like talking to some people at times if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? Different people would say yes to that question, but mean something very different from each other. Some would be able to show you worn-out Bibles from being read a lot, a schedule filled with times of serving other Christians, names of other Christians in their church that they are meeting with and praying for. They're doing life together, holding each other up in the fight of life in this city that's, well, honestly, not easy to live consistently as a Christian. 
But others of us perhaps would say yes to that question about being a Christian, and yet would only maybe at best talk about various churches that we've attended this past year, some Christian friends that we know from various places and throughout points in time, and sweet memories of how we used to volunteer in anything from VBS to men's Bible study. We have a different answer to support the answer to the question, are we Christian? The point is not that one of them is a Christian and one of them is not. It is that they have very different definitions and give very different details to support their answers. Well, this morning, the Apostle Paul, writing God's Word, will help us by providing clarity on our profession and subsequently our practice as Christians. And like a good spiritual father, he will direct us and he will warn us. To see that for yourself, open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We are making our way through this letter from Paul the Apostle, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to these new Christians in these southern towns of the area of the Mediterranean area known as Galatia. Now, just to kind of give you the sort of spoiler alert as to where we're headed by summary this morning, here's what we're going to learn. Christians love other Christians by continuing to serve them. Every part of that is important. Christians love other Christians by continuing to serve them. Let's look at our text this morning, albeit briefly, but very rich. Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Two lessons we can see here in the text that we need to make sure we do not miss. The first lesson is enjoy your Christian freedom to lovingly serve one another. Enjoy your Christian freedom to lovingly serve each other. You can go back and see this in verse 13, how it begins. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, let's just sort of back up from the text especially those of you who are maybe late to the conversation and get the context of this text. Paul has been repeatedly, repeatedly throughout the last five and a half chapters saying to these new Christians, friends, listen to me. God loves you. God accepts you, not because what you promise to do, pledge to do, or will eventually do. And any sort of obeying of the Old Testament Masoretic Law. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is he loves you because of what Christ has done for you. And your faith in Christ alone, for the forgiveness of your sins, guarantees God's acceptance of you. You are free. Now, he speaks of the law in interesting terms. He is Jewish himself. He was raised in the law. He was a Pharisee. He was very zealous and taught it repeatedly throughout his life. But then he comes to understand that the very people he once hated, even planned and, and orchestrated their death, i.e. Christians, he came to believe like them. What was that belief? 
believing that Jesus of Nazareth was not just one of many Jewish rabbis, it actually was the promised Son of God. And by Jesus' life, he fulfilled the law so that we would not be held responsible to it, so that all those who believe in Jesus get all of Jesus' credit. It's an amazing deal. It's a deal based on grace, not based on merit, what you've earned. You are free from the burden of the law if your faith is in Christ. But the question then comes, what do I do with that freedom? Well, Paul understands that there are, if you will, two ditches to avoid in the Christian life. He spent a lot of time in the previous chapters talking about the first ditch. The first ditch of the Christian life is one of legalism. The second one is one of license. Now, let's just define these so you understand this, so you can kind of get a clarity on what this is. Legalism is really the recognizing, causing you to focus on yourself, what you do, giving you self-confidence that you are accepted by God because of what you have done. You have obeyed God's law. Paul says, Christians, don't go back to legalism. He's been talking about that for chapters. If you go back to thinking that you can obey the law as your confident standing before God, you're, you're going to fail. fail every time. First of all, no one obeys the law perfectly. And secondly, if you think that way, you're undermining why Christ even did what he did. But now he gets into the second ditch we can go into. So the first words are driving our lives into is the ditch of legalism, which ironically is profoundly self-centered. Focusing on yourself, what you can do or what you're not going to do, and comparing yourself to others, classic legalism. But ironically, the second ditch of the Christian life, by way of temptation, is license. License is ironically self-centered as well. License is essentially meaning the freedom to do what you want to do, including sin, because there's no moral expectation that should be expected of you since you live by grace. This is why Paul writes what he writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, after writing three chapters in Romans about the profound reality of God's grace in forgiving sinners. He can sort of perceive the Romans like hands being raised in the conversation and going, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, may it never be. The same type of idea here about license. It ironically causes you to focus on yourself in a self-centered way. You want to use the gospel, you want to use grace to get out of accountability. If God loves me not for what I do, but for who I am in Christ, then I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, just a minute, please. He can see the heart transitioning from one way to undermine the gospel to the other way. And that's why he says here in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is this idea, this desire you have inside of you. This, this sense of like things that's not yet brought under the submission of the word of God by the spirit of God. These things that run contrary to what the word of God clearly says to do. Don't use it for the opportunity to feed the flesh. Phil Riken helpfully writes, whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license grants freedom without responsibility. It's helpful. 
You know, as people in the United States of America, we love freedom. We love talking about it. We love celebrating it. We just had a national holiday where we, you know, declared it, which is pretty funny to me because I'm not sure if people understand the history of that holiday, July 4th. It just started to get associated with everything. Like, we're actually, like, celebrating our freedom from England. You know, the nasty Brits. I say that jokingly, of course. But the history of the country sort of being free, if you will, from the, from the reign and the monarchy in England. But whether it be that be your point of reference, the idea is people love appreciatively, understandably, freedom. Uh, for some and for you, it's because of the countries you were born into and perhaps raised in by contrast of what you experience here, you understood what it's like to not have freedom, to not be allowed to participate in the democratic processes of free elections, to not be able to have your, your businesses not be taxed by the government in exorbitant ways, to not be able to have property rights, other types of freedoms that you just sort of come to expect here. In the United States, we talk often about freedom, and we love to discuss it regularly. We often will say this statement, it's a free country. We shout it, we sing it, we print it on t-shirts. We like our free market economy. We enjoy free trade, free enterprise. People want a free hand. They want free reign. And they even want sometimes a free lunch. The problem comes when there's freedom without responsibility. An example of this is in the 1960s long before a number of you were born, including myself. Common phrase would have been free love. Free love. Free love was really the opportunity to say, we want to enjoy sexual intimacy without the responsibility of marriage. And it was sort of lifting the, the traditional norms of sexual overbearing relationship in the context of marriage to say you could be interactive with others without the com commitment of marriage. Really, to be honest, that's not free love, that's free lust. Pursuing your own desires without commitments towards other people. Well, God knows us. He created us. He has been with us since the beginning of time. He knows our hearts are inclined to sin. And even when we are set free from the condemnation of sin, as we are at the gospel, we have to be directed accordingly. So here in Galatians, he says, your freedom from the law by way of condemnation is to now be directed with that freedom towards not yourself but towards others. It says here, through love serve one another. Paul is essentially saying, you're free. Now enjoy your freedom doing what the freedom has given you the opportunity to do, to love and serve others. I mean, let's just role play this opportunity here. If I put $1,000 in your hand, do you think instinctively, huh, do you know what I could do with $1,000? That would be clutch right now in life. Either some responsibilities I have or some desires I've had for a while. I could, I could, I could spend $1,000 ironically pretty quickly. But how many of you, if given that $1,000 put in your hand, would think, man, 
What a surprise blessing to be given something I was not expected. I love this feeling right now. I would love to take that money and help bless others as well and maybe go around to 10 people and put $100 in each of their hands. Or maybe I have some responsibility and so I need to care for some bills and this is how God has providentially provided. So maybe I keep $500 to care for these pressing needs that I do have, but yet $500 more left of that thousand that I could just bless and serve others. And I begin to sort of observe like, man, I could just tell they could use some help with tires on their car or maybe she could be able to afford maybe uh, getting a new purse or man, he looks like his shoes are worn out or man, I just would love to bless him with a date night because I think that stretches them right now financially. How much do you think from what God has given you do you think that is a means by which I can care for and serve other people Paul says God has not simply put a thousand dollars in your hand God has put the freedom from the law in your hand to do whatever you want with your life because you're now not living for your salvation to earn it you're living out your salvation to demonstrate it and if that's true and that largely correlates to how well you interact with and think about and serve other people. This visible display, may I remind you of a well-known text that was not written for marriages, though it certainly applies by application. It was written in the context of Christians who were divisive and immature and young in the faith, to be sure, and lots of problems, and they're got spiritual gifts and sort of trying them on for the first time. And Paul's like, okay, hold on, hold on, stop, 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 stop. Listen to me, listen to me, look up here, listen to me. You're forgetting the whole point of why God is blessing you as a church. And right in the middle of these chapters of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, we're talking about spiritual gifts. He's like, I need to get your attention and focus on the reality of what this will look like in community. And he writes these famous verses from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, where he unpacks by explanation and action what love looks like. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, friends, Love is a concept I imagine everybody in this room sort of generically affirms as good and probably acknowledges they could probably be more loving and they certainly wish others were more loving. Great. What does that actually look like? What are actually the details of that in street clothes? Love is lived out in particulars. It has specifics, clear relationships. It's not just a temperament. You're a loving person by gregarious interaction with others. It's demonstrated in committed relationships. When someone says, for example, I love marriage, you're like, oh, well, awesome. Who are you married to? Well, I'm, I'm not. Okay. I'm, so you appreciate marriage as a concept, certainly a God-given design, but, but you, you still had the opportunity. Oh, I've had lots of opportunity. So you, you actually know people of the opposite sex, godly, like you, Christians, want to pursue the Lord, and you've just knowingly desired not to pursue them? But, I, but you love marriage? I'm so confused. 
Why would you claim to love something but yet have no demonstrable display of committing to a person? Husband, to say he loves marriage but not love his wife would be confusing at best. So this is for Christians. Many of us as a church have been reading over the summer Habits of Grace, a book written by David Mathis. And uh, yesterday's section in this coming week for the men is a section on community. Listen to what David Mathis says in Habits of Grace. He says, when our fellowship is not simply a network of loose Christian relationships, but anchored in a particular covenant community as committed members together in a local outpost of Christ's kingdom, that's what church is, we come closest to experiencing what those first Christians did. When people didn't just drift in and out of the community, but were either in or out. And those who were in pledged to be the church for each other through thick and thin. Covenant community is like Christian marriage in that it is within the framework of stated commitments and promised allegiances that life in relationship is guarded, nourished, and encouraged most to thrive. Summary, part of loving is committing. Look what he says in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, today, Christians often refer to the Old Testament in that kind of vernacular. Uh, there's various reasons through church history why it's been coined that term. It would be common in Jewish ears, even in Jesus' teachings, to refer to such writings as the law the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, also known as the Torah, are the first five books of the Bible. In, in Jewish vocabulary, it's called the Torah. In Greek vocabulary, it's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Torah, as we know, are the writings of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's kind of frames for the people of God how they think, how they understand God's law as for them. And it's really what even... Paul himself was referring to us when he talks about the Mosaic law in summary, what is the Mosaic law? But over history, as we think about the Torah, later in Jewish history, you have the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of various Jewish rabbis, which are teachers, giving explanations and applications of the Torah to the life of the individual and to the community of the people. The Talmud contains discussion between thousands of rabbis spanning centuries before it was codified and put down on paper. Today, if you were to measure it by kind of printed out eight and a half by 11 pages of paper, uh, the, the Talmud, as an expression of the Torah, would be 6,200 pages long to just be their explanation and application of the Torah. This is what it takes to summarize all of God's law for all of life. It's a total of two and a half million words. And Paul's like, um, I can just save you a lot of reading. Verse 14, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. He's like, that's a summary of it. Now, interestingly, Paul is quoting here Leviticus 19.18. You think about when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what, what, is, what is the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with your neighbor with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes it in relationship to God and to man. All of what the word of God is calling people to do. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, some of you might be wondering, by the way, Eric, in my count, that's not one word. Is Paul bad with math? The whole law is fulfilled in just one word? I mean, I understand there's like Greek then to English, but like that's more, it's still, it's still more than one word. It's this, this phrase, this kind of euphemistic phrase. I can sort of summarize it like in one kind of summary way is what he's describing here. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting to note this reference, as yourself. This is not a call Hear me say this in today's cultural therapeutic ears and how we read the Bible often through our experience. This is not a call towards self-love. You'll sometimes hear people say today, well, you, you cannot love others if you've not learned to love yourself. And so the sort of call is like, you gotta learn to love yourself more. And the problem is you don't love yourself more. I just wanna tell you all right now, congratulations, you all have doctorates in self-love. You're not kindergartners, you're not high school graduates, you're not high school dropouts with GEDs, you're not bachelor degrees, you're not masters, you are PhDs in self-love. If there's anything you and I are good at, it's learning how to love ourselves. In fact, even seemingly destructive behavior we can take against ourselves is sort of painful ways in which we're working out our thoughts about ourselves in comparison to everybody else around us. The Bible assumes what is so true about us, which is, we wake up with ourselves, we go to bed with ourselves, we think so often throughout the world about ourselves, our self is the reference point. What we think, what we know, what we enjoy, what we don't enjoy, what we wanna do, what we don't wanna do. And while those thoughts can be complicated and confusing at times, the point is, God knows this about you. You're really good, I'm really good at knowing myself and thinking about myself. What he is now directing us to do is to move away from ourselves and begin to think about others. What's interesting here is that the Christian life is not simply one of new actions, serving others. Actually, it's one also of new motivations. New works, but also a new love. So here's a question for reflection. Do you love others? I'm not asking you if you know you should. I'm asking you, do you actually love others? John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you're new to Grace Church, you maybe have already heard or maybe not yet heard us say something that we'll say occasionally over the months and years to say. And that is the reality that we want to be a people who love others as God has loved us. 
Notice where the reference point is. As God has loved us. Not we want to love others as others have loved us. That could be a failed exercise. That could be a discouraging and spotty track record. But God's love for us in Christ is this perfect track record. Sort of baseball percentages, batting a thousand. This is probably the most sports references you're ever going to hear from me in a single sermon. It's a perfect record. Here's some direction to give some, hopefully, ideas. Some ways to love others at Grace Church. Commit to the church. It doesn't have to be this church. It could be some other church, but commit to the church. Pray for each other. You can even use Grace Church Prayer Guide if you're a member of this church. Text encouragement to each other. Have a verse, send it to a person. Plan to be together. Do not wait for what we put on your calendar. What do you put on your calendar? Don't wait for what we announce or what you get sent to in a Friday email. What do you have on your calendar? What plans are you making to be together? with others in your life. Ask questions to know each other better. And as we've learned recently, even Lynn to learn to listen well to those answers given. Don't use everybody's answer to your question as an introduction to your great life. Well, that reminds me. And you just sort of wow them with your own story. No, no, follow up their answer with another question. And they give that answer, give another question. And just keep going until time runs out. Know them much better than you otherwise would. Be patient. Remembering maturity takes time. Not just theirs, also yours. I mean, after all, we're patient with you, believe it or not. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. When you're in community, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how and from whom will you be sinned against. You will be sinned against. Unavoidable reality. Learn to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Comfort struggling people with hope. Do you know that one of the greatest lies that happens every Sunday in church gatherings like this is that whatever you think you're going through, no one else has ever gone through, nor can relate to? Either by the decisions you've made in life or the experiences you've had against you, maybe by the sins of others that you have wrongly and just tragically received abuse or things which you're struggling with in relationships, marriage, or friendships, or otherwise, you are not alone. And friends, as you encounter other people like that, comfort them with words of hope. You're like, I don't know what to say. I get that. You don't have to be a professional counselor to give them the words of Scripture that can be a source of hope for them, as God's Word speaks to them. Pursue wandering slash missing people. Pursue wandering slash missing people. Sheep, unfortunately, wander endlessly. They do. It's just sort of the nature, like built into us. We just, sort of, we just wander. Without sort of the walls of Christian community, we just sort of walk into other areas. Friends, be a kind person to love others by pursuing them. I don't see you, but I'm thinking of you. I care about you. Lastly, conspire together to serve others. Conspire together. That's right. Conspire not to slander, not to gossip, to serve others. Like form secret friendships where you devise 
ways in which you guys can serve others of you guys. And maybe even do it anonymously. That could blow people's mind. Now, I'm not saying like mow people's lawn like 2 o'clock in the morning. No one's going to appreciate that, and you will be found out. Just ways in which you can perceive the need. I mean, there are some single parents here that are just faithfully, day in and day out, carrying the weight of both mother and father in role. They love their children, but they're tired. And just a chance to bless them and care for them. Just a chance to get away and get a break. It's not because they don't love their children, but just a chance to sort of be rested and refreshed. So often as a young father to my young children, one of the things I knew when I came home to my wife was one of the ways I could love her and serve her well was to give her a break from our children. Did I think she didn't love her kids? I, think I knew she loved her kids, but I knew she just needed a break. Well, how can we as family care for the single fathers, the single mothers in our church here, which we conspire of ways which we plan to serve them, being with them, caring for the kids, whatever it might be. You think about the reality of how trains travel. They carry cargo great distances. But without the tracks that these trains travel on, they would not get anywhere. Here's the reality in the church. Without love, your good works will not go very far. The tracks that your good works of service to one another must travel on are the tracks of love. This is exactly what we need to recognize here. What Paul is saying in the Galatians is that it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about being motivated by the right thing. You love others as God has loved you. Don't look to people to motivate you to do the right thing. When you do, you will eventually stop. Why? Because people will disappoint you. They will let you down. They will not appreciate you. They will not reciprocate you. Worse, they will sin against you. If you're not motivated by a gospel-informed love for others, you will eventually quit. You will quit on people. You will quit on the church. And you might even be tempted to quit on God. It's like a warranty. Like, I want my money back. It did not deliver and what I thought. Otherwise, I was purchasing Friends, you directed it in the wrong place. You got all that you needed and all that would be supplied to you by putting your faith in Christ. Everything beyond that is grace upon grace. Only the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and promising to return can fuel you for a lifetime of serving and loving others. It takes us to our second lesson here. Be aware of the temptation to act like wild animals. Beware of the temptation to act like wild animals. So he says in verses 13 and 14, enjoy your Christian freedom to lovingly serve each other. But then he sort of speaks candidly of what we need to be reminded about. They're like, oh, he actually does get it. Verse 15, look back to it. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, I don't know about you, but I appreciate how honest God's word is. It recognizes the reality of what happens when you put Christians together in this sort of like group community exercise. It could go really well or it could go really wrong. And it really kind of depends on what they do with that opportunity, those times, those relationships. 
And I think this is important because I want even those of you who are not Christians to recognize not just what I'm saying, but what I'm saying because of what the Bible is saying by implication. It needs to be very clear to those of you who are not Christians that the church is a family of redeemed sinners who have put their faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin, but sometimes with difficulty care for and serve each other and their desire to honor Jesus Christ. They want others to know of the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his promised return. The church is not a place, listen to me, is not a place of moral perfection, of public and personal purity, with no sign of sin in sight. Instead, it is recognizing that we are still in a fight. We're in a fight that acknowledges sin and its temptation because of the attacks of the evil one, because of the presence of the world system that's against God, and because of our own indwelling flesh is still tempting us. Is the power, is the power of sin removed and that we don't have to obey it? Yes. Is the penalty of sin removed and that we don't have to fear hell and eternal consequence? Yes. But is the presence of sin removed? No. That's only true in your life. It's also true in other people's lives. I say it because for those of you who are non-Christians, I want to be clear because I think sometimes people sort of kind of like customize the good news of Jesus as if if you come to Christ, it's just awesome. You're like, well, it is depending on how you define awesome. To be adopted by God, awesome. To be a co-heir with Christ, Awesome. To have the wrath of God removed from you and the penalty of sin and eternal hell and judgment being removed, awesome. To be given the spirit, the third member of the triune Godhead to you as a pledge of your inheritance in Christ, awesome. To have confidence every prayer you pray God hears and will answer according to his will in your life, awesome. But the promise that you'll never have hardship doesn't make that promise. The promise you'll never get sick again doesn't make that promise. The promise that you won't experience relational disappointment or discouragement or even worse, despair. He doesn't make that promise. In fact, interestingly, as Pastor Chris prayed in the pastoral prayer, sometimes God uses those deepest and darkest trials, which sometimes are most personal and painful when they're relational, to draw us to himself and to pull out in us what otherwise is broken and missing. So for those of you who have not come to Christ, come to Christ with the reality of what God offers. Love for you through the death of his son. The confident reality that you can be forgiven by your faith alone and him alone. And then his promise to mature you into the likeness of Christ, his son, through all seasons and circumstances, sometimes personal and sometimes relational. I think of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christians, we'll see in the coming weeks what he's going to elaborate in verse 16. We talked about this biting and devouring in verse 15. He starts talking about walking by the spirit versus walking by the flesh and these desires of the flesh are against the spirit. This sense of impurity and idolatry and enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of anger. So those details are forthcoming. 
But let me just at least frame it this way for you. So if you're a Christian, hear me this morning to give it to you in two categories, knowing our hearts are drawn in ways that sometimes we think are unique to us, but they're actually common to all of us. Number one, be aware of apathetic absence. Apathetic absence is basically when you're like, you know what, I don't care. And I'm not there. I'm not there because I don't care. Apathetic absence will slowly eat away at your soul and greatly affect your spiritual vitality if not call into question your true conversion. Hebrews talks about in chapter 10 that we should not forsake the fellowship of the saints. You could say it like this, the sin of avoiding the assembly is the sin to hide all other sins. Because in assembly, in community, you are known for good or for bad. You are cared for, welcomed or not, or you are held accountable. But also avoid the second one, which is pathetic presence. It's not just apathetic absence, it's also pathetic presence. You're like, well, what's pathetic presence? Pathetic presence is you're there, but you're there not for the things of the Spirit. You're there for yourself. How many churches have been destroyed over the generations because they turned on each other? They fought over the stupidest things. Colors of carpet, colors of walls, times of service, song selection, Bible translations, programs that we used to have that we no longer have, programs that we don't have that we should have. These types of ways of thinking can make your life so pathetically petty that to be quite honest, people wish you were absent because your presence is not in any way building up the body. Friends, I'm not saying this is true of anybody here. I mean, after all, you get points for being present. You're not absent. Well done. But even in being present, you've got to be careful because how much self-centeredness creeps into our heart and how we can bite and devour each other. And that terminology is like this wild animals. Redeemed sinners, now declared saints, being known and typecast as wild animals. You're like, man, that's, I do not want to be a spiritual jackal. That would be horrible. So what do we do? Four ways to biblically respond to disappointing community. People are going to disappoint you. Here's four ways. Number one, relate to them. Relate to people. In verse 15, what Paul is doing here is he's acknowledging the reality. When you put Christians together long enough, problems are going to occur. Biting and devouring one another. And point number one here about relating to them is if you don't relate to them in actual action and that you've done the same thing to somebody else, if not them yourself, you relate to them at least temptation. I mean, I'm going to be honest. One of the greatest sanctifying gifts of God to me as a Christian is being a pastor. Because I have to live publicly. I just want to be clear Pastors are not people who are like, you know what? I gave up sin back in 1983, and I can teach you the pathway how to get there. No, that's why so much in Scripture, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, these passages describe the characteristics of elders, things like they must not be quarrelsome. They must be hospitable. They must not be drunkards. They must be dignified. They must be above reproach. 
They are to themselves be what others are instructed to be. The idea here is that we should be able to relate to each other. Not look down upon them and judge them, but to actually relate to them. Secondly, pray for them. Pray for them, because after all, if we can relate to them, then let's pray for them. Because we realize our words alone will not change anybody. We can give a good example. We can maybe give a corrective word. We can maybe even offer some admonishment and encouragement. But the words alone doesn't change anybody. The Spirit uses the Word of God to bring renewal. Third, be patient with them. Be patient with them. This is the reality of the timeline on how we interact in the church. So often people are like, you know, I tried the church and it failed me. Like, well, I'd like to know your definition of fail. I'd like to know how long you tried for and I'd like to know what that looked like to try it. I'm not saying you didn't have a bad experience, but I think sort of truth in advertising, welcome to the local church. I'm not saying you should be okay with sin. By no means. We pray for it. We preach against it. We want to honor Christ and represent a holy people. But the reality is, how can we be patient that God is doing a work in other people's lives, not just our own? Fourth and final, pursue them in love. Pursue them in love. What happens in a relationship is, eventually, as I get to know you, I want to eventually walk away from you. I mean, here's the reality. If you've got bad breath... I want to turn my face away from you. Why? So I don't have to smell your bad breath. And if I had bad breath, you'd do the exact same thing to me. That's just our breath. Now imagine our spiritual life. The instinct is like, dude, you are jacked up. I'm going to relocate over here. I'm going to try to find the non-jacked up people. Of which I, of course, am probably the captain of that club. The instinct from the gospel is the exact opposite. What did Jesus do? He pursued people that otherwise had been rejected, even by the religious, even by simply the most biblically knowledgeable. Jesus loved those who would not be lovable in any stretch of the imagination. So what have we learned? Enjoy your Christian freedom to lovingly serve each other. Be aware of the temptation to act like wild animals. Summarizing it all, Christians love other Christians by continuing to serve them. Let me give you this charge, this challenge, something I'm going to ask you to do this week, something we're about to do right now. Pray for yourself in light of what you've learned today from God's word. Pray for this church in light of what we've heard to these churches in Galatia, be true, the church here at Grace Church. Pray for other churches in Miami. We want God to have healthy churches all around the city of Miami who are lovingly preaching the gospel and obeying, it, obeying the word accordingly. Now let's do that together. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.